Let's pray. Father, use your word to speak to our hearts. May our ears hear what the Spirit is saying to the church today. And Father, I ask that we all not only hear, but Father, that your Spirit uses the word to convict us where we need conviction. In the name of Jesus Christ, who is God and Lord, we pray. Amen. Continuing our study in the book of James, it's interesting, I was looking back, it took us three different sermons to get through chapter one, and we're going to get through chapter two in just two sermons. We're making progress, right? Yeah. <laughs> Today we want to look at chapter two, verses one through 13. Radical faith is not compatible with favoritism. Now, over the course of our study, James showed us the radical way we endure trials by counting it all joy. He also has directed us to the realities of enduring trials. And last week, we saw radical faith's response to the Word of God, where we learned that a true believer is one in whose heart has the Word implanted in it and who responds to the Word by listening, receiving, acting upon, and reflecting upon the Word of God. And we also saw that true religion or true faith is one that has control of the tongue, cares for the helpless, and avoids worldliness. Now today, we're continuing to see another of the various trials that the believer will endure to, in order to prove that his faith is genuine. Ladies and gentlemen, today's trial is favoritism or discrimination. In some circles, that's not very popular. To a lot of people, it's very uncomfortable, is it not? Think about it. In our climate we live today, it's very uncomfortable. And in other circles, it's discussed on a regular basis. So, but we are going to be looking at this from God's perspective, from his, from his inspired word today. Now, some translations use the word partiality. Some use the word favoritism in, the, in these verses. In any sense... It's the unfair treatment, preferential treatment, let me add that, preferential treatment of a person or a group at the expense of others. Now, it goes on every day to one degree or another in life. It just happens. In our homes, where it seems like uh, one child is treated differently than the others. And in extreme cases, it can bring about uh, abuse in the home. In the workplace, how about the work environment? Any of you ever experienced some, any form of favoritism or discrimination in the work environment? Where it seems like sometimes promotions and raises are not given because of performance, but because of the person. We even see that back in Genesis, where Jacob favors his youngest son, Joseph, over the other 11 sons. What did this do? This created an abusive relationship between Joseph and his other brothers. And again, here in chapter 2, we see James writing from the heart of a pastor, as he did in chapter 1. And James's point here would be that true faith honors God by showing favoritism, but mercy. True faith honors God by not showing favoritism, but mercy. Now, how can we bring that to the 21st century for us? True faith will live a life compatible with the teachings of Jesus Christ, which includes not showing favoritism, but mercy and love. In our last message, we were introduced to the doctrine of Christianity, the law that, that is the law, the teachings of Christ. James's law is the law of Moses as interpreted by Jesus Christ. So the perfect law is applied to our religion by the believer not showing favoritism or discrimination toward other people, specifically the poor and helpless, as in our text today. Now, James spends a great deal of time on this subject, which leads me to believe that there was some discrimination taking place in the church in that day. Now, the word is used in, the, uh, in our verses today, the word assembly. In the Greek, it's literally synagogue. Now, we know a synagogue is a meeting place for the Jews. This is the only place in the New Testament where the assembly of Christians is called a synagogue. I found that very interesting. And our passage shows 
that it's a weekly worship gathering where the leaders allowed and played favorites between the rich and the poor. It's bad enough when the people do it, but when the leaders allow it, that's, that's going beyond. Now, we don't, know, we, we don't really know if, if this is an actual case of discrimination or just a hypothetical tone taken by James. But if you look at verse 6, he says, you have dishonored the poor. You have dishonored the poor. That implies that some situation similar to this had taken place in the church. The New Testament church is a radical assembly because it meets in opposition to the culture of the day. They had Jews and Gentiles worshiping together. They had slaves and slave owners worshiping together. They had rich and poor worshiping together. Our text today, look at our text today as a gemstone. Whatever color gemstone you want to look at it. But it's a gemstone. We're going to look at three facets of the gemstone. If you'd like to take notes on the back of your bulletin, there are notes there that will kind of help you guide through this if you want to take notes. The first facet of our gemstone is radical faith is a family faith. Now, James uses the same language here as in chapter 1. He says, my brethren, or my brothers and sisters, in other words, fellow members of the family of God. The church is a family and is related through the blood of Christ. Look at verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. James' point here in verse 1 is believers must not show favoritism or discriminate. His use of the word faith or the faith is descriptive of a person who has a relationship with Jesus Christ. I find it interesting the New American Standard uses this terminology. He says, there sh that there be no attitude of favoritism. I think this is very appropriate because we have a situation where Christians are giving too much glory to humans rather than Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, who chose, who chose to identify with the poor and outcasts of the world. If you connect the next passage, chapters 2, verses 14 through 26, where it shows the church had accepted a mere profession of faith as a sufficient means for entrance into membership of the church. Sounds a little bit like the modern church, doesn't it? You know, we take you at your word. And this is why Riverside requires anyone who would like to join our family here at Riverside to attend the Foundations of Membership class and have personal interviews with the elders so we can get to know you personally and spiritually. And you know, think about this. When you have a family gathering at home or during the holidays or whatever, what's one of the first things you notice at a family gathering? Who's not there, right? If you look around today, we have a lot of people part of the family of Riverside that are not here. What do we do? We just kind of let it go? Or do we take the initiative and kind of make contact with these people and say, hey, we missed you. We really loved you. We missed you. Now, James is definitely talking about a life that's much more than mere profession. Where in chapter 1, we saw the implanted word of God. We saw the doers of the word. We saw looking into the perfect law. We saw hearers that do not forget. So see, the language is more than mere profession. It's definitely possessive. James ends verse 1, hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Now, different translations produce these words in a different way. Some translations translate it, faith in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Others, faith in the Lord of glory, Jesus Christ. And yet, others, faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. And then we have the one we have today, faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. I find it very interesting that James, the brother, half-brother of Jesus, only refers to Jesus directly twice in his book. Chapter 1, verse 1, and chapter 2, verse 1. But his letter is loaded. It is loaded with the teachings of Jesus Christ. Just look at the book of Esther in the Old Testament. If you're familiar with the book of Esther, if you've ever read the book of Esther, it does not contain the name of God anywhere in the book. But God, his sovereign influence, 
and, and his uh, activity is seen all the way through every verse and every line in the book of Esther. Now look at the way James presents the Lord. He says, Lord, Lord. That's one who occupies the supreme position at the right hand of the Father. It's the divine status of Jesus. And he says, he's Jesus. That's his human name, derived from the name Yeshua, Joshua, same, same word. Which means God saves, God is salvation. He is the one who delivers his people. Remember back in the book of Matthew, chapter 1, I think it's verse 18. It says, you will call his name Jesus for it is he that will save his people from their sins. Lord Jesus Christ. The word Christ is a title literally meaning Messiah. One is anointed by God to be a king and deliverer. And then he uses the word glory. Glory. Nowhere else is the word added to this name series, Lord Jesus Christ. The word glory is never used of itself as a title for God or a title for Christ. So glory is the state of being like God to which Christians are defined and which Jesus now exists. Jesus is the Lord of glory, the exalted one, one coming at the end, to end of time to save and to judge. So radical faith is a family faith that does not show favoritism or discriminate. The second facet of our gemstone. Radical faith is a non-discriminatory faith. Now verses 2 through 4 is one sentence in the Greek. It's an if and then kind of statement. If a man wearing, then you have made distinctions. You know this, and we'll look at that in full in a second. We're going to see three proofs, three proofs that a radical faith or true faith is not discriminatory. Discriminatory. That's a hard word sometimes. Proof number one, discrimination is evil before God. Now, the first thing I want you to see here is the picture of discrimination that is evil. Look at verses 2 and 3. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or you sit down at my feet. Some translations say, by my footstool. Now, in order to understand what's happening here, I'd like to take just a couple of moments and briefly give you a little background about the Roman Empire during this period. There was virtually no middle class as we understand the term. Only 8% had some kind of wealth. 2% were gaining wealth, and over 90% lived in utter poverty or described as poor. In our culture, social status is often a function of wealth, education, or birth. A person can start at the bottom and work their way up out of a certain situation to a higher life level lifestyle. That's fairly common today. I was thinking back about my mom who grew up uh, in a very poor in, a country, in the country outside of St. Louis, Missouri. She did everything from retail sales to selling Avon door to door. Now, if you know anything about Avon, it's a good product. And back years ago, they used to set, they used to have these uh, this wild country cologne for men. And y'all ever, some of y'all, y'all are too young to remember that stuff, aren't you? Gil, you remember that, don't you? Yeah, okay, you're old enough to remember that. Well, they'd come in these little glass containers. They'd be shaped like a, a car or a truck or a fishing lure or something like that. I was so sick of wild country cologne because I got it every year for Christmas, every year for my birthday, on and on it goes. I had a nice collection of little things, though, but I was so sick of wild country cologne. But I remember her walking door to door with a heavy satchel selling this Avon. And eventually, she retired as a secretary from a huge moving company called Burnham Van Service. My dad grew up in the country in Georgetown, Georgia, where his father had died when my dad was only nine years old. My dad joined the Air Force at the age of 18, only with a 10th grade education. He learned aircraft mechanics and eventually, for 30 years, rebuilt automatic transmissions for the federal government. And here I am, a disabled chef that has been called by God to be an elder at Riverside Baptist Church. There is no 
higher desire or calling on a person's life. I know a lot of you have similar stories, like, you know, kind of like the Jeffersons, you know, moving on up to the east side, to a deluxe apartment in the sky, just moving on up. And most people in the first century didn't have these kind of opportunities. They were marked by three different classifications, class, social order, and status. Now here the classifications were kind of like this, went kind of like this. You had the noble Roman families with a lot of land and agricultural production. The only way into this was birth and wealth. And to be a part of this order, you had to have 250,000 times the average laborer wage. 250,000 times. Now think about that. Then you had wealth from merchants, another group, wealth from merchants like bankers, uh, entrepreneurs, shop owners, organizers of government contracts who built roads, supplied army supplies, and along with this group was the much-loved and admired tax collector. The minimum for this particular order was 400,000 times the wage of the average person. And neither of these groups liked each other, nor did they like other people very much. Then you had the local elite where wealth was more important than birth. A few of these families would dominate a large percentage of the property in any given city. 2% of the population ended up here. And then you had the freed slaves and that had become well off. Now they were not officially recognized and they were not, there was a very, very small percentage of the population. But yet in all of this, 90% plus was outside of these different groups. Now, when it comes to status, age, birth, birthplace, gender, wealth, citizenship, military career, and occupation were the most important factors pertaining to status. Went kind of like this. Country folks were considered classless. That's why in the Gospels, when they're talking about Jesus Christ, and Nathaniel says, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Remember that phrase? Nazareth was country folks. And they were considered classless. Here's the cycle. Country folks had no class. Small town folks weren't as important as city folks. New money was less appealing than old money. Freeborn were considered better than freed people. Poor urban people envied the people that might have lost their fortune. These are the people that James is writing to in the Roman province of Jerusalem. And actually, the first century is not much different than the 21st century. They loved money and status. Be truthful. Our world today loves money. Our world loves status. So is the picture of this church that we see. But let's look at the practice, the practice of discrimination, which is evil. In walks two people, one wearing a gold rings, one wearing gold rings and dressed in the finest of clothes, the other a poor person in dirty clothes. The name, the, the word here is shabbily dressed, shabby clothing, shabbily dressed. The gold ring symbolizes an upper class person, maybe a banker or an entrepreneur. Did you know, I found it interesting, that there were shops where you could actually rent these gold rings and, and, and precious jewels and all for special occasions. It's not much different than it is now because you think these people that walk on down the, what do they call it, the red carpet and, and go on these stages and all, all those jewels and all they wear, you think that belongs to them? Uh-uh. Those are rented, my friend, to make them look finer and bigger than what they really are. So we have the word fine here. Fine, descriptive, means bright and shiny. I remember back in the 70s, um, where it was not, it was very common, very uncommon for a person to come to church without ties and suits on. And it was very common for people to come and go buy a new suit a new, or a new tie, a new shirt, whatever, to come to church. And man, that people would walk in and, and, and man, look at those threads you got on. They're fine, man. They look good. I'll tell you another little thing. Back in the 70s, the total opposite of the 60s. You know, back in the 50s and 60s, the ties that men wore were little bitty things, about this. But in the 70s, the competition was to see how, who had the biggest tie and who could tie the biggest knot. They were fine, man. We were fine strutting around. The word fine is the same word used 
in Revelation 15, where it says the seven angels were clothed in linen, clean and bright, and girded about their chest with golden sashes. In contrast, the poor man in shabby, filthy clothes and nothing else. And then we, last week, we introduced the word filth, filth, filthy. It's the same word used in chapter 1, verse 21, where we're told to put off all filth. That means something foul or putrid. Think of the sinful filth that Christians must put off. Here's possibly a homeless beggar type person dressed in mismatched, stained, smelly rags for clothes. Now this could be two guests visiting the first church of Jerusalem. Or it could be two new converts that are still getting their bearings on how to live the Christian life. But notice in verse 3, he says, if you pay special attention to the rich person, this means look at this person with favor, favoritism. The poor guy is treated with disgust and disdain or even contempt. You stand over there. You sit on the floor by my footstool. That's James's if statement. If these people come to your church and you show favoritism or discriminate based on status, then, look at verse 4, then you have discriminated among yourselves being judges with evil thoughts or evil motives. Why do people discriminate? Why do people do that? Why do people show favoritism? Because we believe that we can get things from the rich people that we cannot give, get from the poor. Discrimination in the believer's life is a manifestation of a divided heart toward God because you're setting yourself up as a judge with an evil heart or evil motives. Improper division between rich and poor reflects improper divisions in the minds and hearts of the believer. Douglas Moo, in his commentary on James, said this, Consistent Christian conduct only comes from a consistent Christian heart and mind. Proof number one, discrimination is evil before God. Proof number two, discrimination is opposed to the grace of God. Now James begins with the word, listen, brothers and sisters, meaning he's emphasizing his upcoming words. He illustrated and condemned discrimination in verses 2 through 4. But now he gets into the why discrimination is evil. He gives three accusations against these people. The first accusation is this. It opposes God's grace because it opposes God's own attitude of sovereign choice. Look at verse 5. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen the, those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? This is persecution, my friend. Favoritism toward the rich is wrong because it contradicts God's choosing certain people on which to lavish his grace, the poor in spirit. In Deuteronomy 4, we see God chose Israel. In Acts 15, we see God chose the Gentiles. Here we see God choosing the poor to inherit the kingdom of God. The word for poor here is a humble and meek person that re recognizes their utter dependence upon God and their trusting in him for their deliverance. And I found it very interesting. It's the same thought, a word used in the Septuagint, which is the Greek Old Testament, in Isaiah 61, where it says this, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted, he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners. Same word, same thought. The late first century word for poor was used of the poor who put their faith in God and not material wealth. What a contrast. People who trust God versus those who trust God mixed with the standards of the world. The last part of verse 5. Has not God chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith? The first accusation, it opposes God's grace because it opposes God's attitude of sovereign choice. The second accusation, it opposes God's grace because it opposes God's purpose of using the unusual. Using the unusual. Look at verse 6. But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? This is oppression. From James's words, 
I believe the church was largely made up of poor people. Now, the sheer numbers, the sheer numbers of poor in the congregation made it appear or seem like God is choosing just the poor to come to faith. There were so many poor, it just seemed like they're the only ones that God's choosing. They didn't notice the, the few rich people that were attending there and the few rich that were coming to faith. James did not use the word only the poor in his letter. No. God chose the poor first. God would not exclude people from faith just because they're rich as far as the world standards go. He would not do that. In 1 Corinthians 1, we see where God did not choose many that were worldly wise or many that were strong or many that were noble, but God chose the foolish things to shame the wise, the weak to confound the strong, the lowest to despise are chosen. Why? So man could not boast before God. It's by God's own purposes, God's own choices that you are in Christ, who is the wisdom of God, who is the righteousness of God, who is the sanctification and redemption. So when we boast, we boast in the Lord. We receive the grace of God as a gift from God, so we can boast of receiving grace, not by our own merits, not by our own ways, but by God's choice. He lavished it upon us. God loves to lavish upon those who, uh, lavish his grace on those who the world discards. God give, gives grace to those who realize they're totally inadequate to approach God and meet his holy standards. To be rich in faith, means that true wealth is not of this world, but riches galore in the kingdom to come. James accuses these believers of dishonoring and insulting the poor by showing favoritism to the very people that were harming the testimony of the church, as he said, by dragging fellow believers into court and slandering the name of Christ. Discrimination is evil because it opposes the purpose of God's use of the unusual. But the third accusation is this, it opposes God's grace because it opposes God's name. Look at verse 7. Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? This is blasphemy. Blasphemy. James uses an Old Testament type term to refer to God, the name. It's the same word used in Acts 2. Rip, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. The believers had started living and acting like unbelievers with all of their oppression, all their persecution, and all the blasphemy, all against God's grace. Proofs 1 and 2, discrimination is evil before God and opposes the grace of God. But proof number 3 is discrimination opposes the law of God. There's two core thoughts here. Discrimination is sin. Look at verses 8 and 9. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Sin violates God's holy standards. In our text, God's holy standard is the law of love. Discrimination violates the law of love. Last week we saw how James uses the law, meaning the law of Moses as interpreted by Jesus Christ. James cites the royal law here as referenced in Leviticus 19, verse 18. Love your neighbor as yourself. But I find it interesting, just before he said that, Moses spoke these words in verse 15 of Leviticus 19. You shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor defer to the great. But you are to judge your neighbor fairly. And then he says, love your neighbor as yourself. In Mark 12, when Jesus gives, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your mind. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He ends in Mark 12 with these words, there is no other commandments greater than these. But in Matthew 22, when he gives these, he says this, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. 
The term royal law referred to the to in verse 8 means belonging to the king or the law pertaining to the kingdom of God. It's the king's law that's being kept. It's the king's law that's being broken. When you keep it, you're definitely doing right. Verse 9 teaches that discrimination is committing sin. You're convicted by that law as a transgressor, a lawbreaker. But Paul says in Galatians 3.28, there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free man. There's neither male or female. For you are all one in Christ. Based on this, and based on James's teachings, all people are to be given the same amount of respect and the same amount of attention. We are to wholeheartedly welcome any and all and give as much deference to those with little status as to those such as a famous politician or actor or sports figure. Have you ever noticed if somebody that's famous walks into a room, everybody just leaves what they're doing and just go, you know? If we do that in the church, James is saying, that's wrong. You pay more attention to them than you do the others. That's wrong. That's sin. The values of the kingdom must take precedence over the values of this world. Discrimination is a sin because it violates the very heart of the kingdom to love our neighbor as ourself. Discrimination in any form is a sin. And let me say this. I'm going to make a fairly radical statement here. No believer should practice discrimination, whether it's social, racial, or denominational. Discrimination is sin. That's thought number one. Thought number two is found in verses 10 and 11. Discrimination is equally judged. Look at verses 10 and 11 with me. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. For if you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. Now James is now referring back to Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5, where it talks about, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery. He's also reflecting upon Jesus, the words of Jesus from Matthew 5, where Jesus said, if a man lusts in his heart after a woman, he has committed adultery in his heart. If a man is angry with his brother, he is guilty of murder. These choices are not haphazard, as both of these represent core issues relative to the ethical behavior, specifically toward other human beings. Murder is a clear violation of a human's right to live. It's dishonoring life. Murder in any form, whether you go out with a gun and shoot somebody, or it's done in a, a room called an abortion clinic. Murder is murder. Adultery is a clear violation of a person's right to an exclusive relationship in the bonds of marriage. It's dishonoring the people and the covenant of marriage besides fulfilling a selfish desire that's more important than your own spouse, your own children, and your own family. James equates discrimination with two of the most horrific acts known to man, murder and adultery. God does not grade sin. Sin is sin. Some may say, well, discrimination is not as bad as adultery or murder, is it? Well, discrimination selects and favors one person over another, then casts one into oblivion and wipes one out as though they were non-existent thus comparable to murder. The same root, the same cause, the same lust, and the same selfish desires as adultery or murder. God's character and law demands perfection, and the only way you can achieve this is by repenting and believing the gospel. Let's face it, all sins, all sins are not equal in the damage they inflict. But they all shatter the unity of the law and render the person a lawbreaker. Let's think about a picture here. Let's do a suppose thing for a second in your mind. Think about a big piece of glass, just a big piece of glass, okay? It can be a window or just a piece of glass. You have a rock, you have a brick, and you have a hammer. 
Now, which of these will cause the greatest damage? Think about it. In reality, all of them. Because no matter which one you throw at the window at one point, the whole glass is shattered and destroyed. So it is with the lives of people that suffer discrimination. Radical faith is a non-discriminatory faith because the discrimination is evil before God. Discrimination opposes the grace of God. And discrimination opposes the law of God. And that brings us to our third facet today. The third facet of our gemstone. Radical faith is an eternal faith. There's two aspects about this eternal faith from our text. Aspect number one. Believers are freed by the gospel. Look at verse 12. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. Verse 12 is constructed in a way that shows the believer will be judged by the law of liberty or the law that gives freedom, which is the gospel. Freedom is not a right to do as we please, but it's the power to do as we should. The gospel leads the believer to godly speech and godly actions. Both of these are not the result of external pressure to keep a list of rules and regulations. That's the Army, Air Force, Navy, and Marines. We are given the power of the gospel inside, the implanted word inside, to control our speech. We're given the power in our hearts to do good actions. Romans 13.10 says, love is the fulfillment of the law. Love for God creates a life that is free to serve. Obedience becomes a blessing because the Spirit makes obedience possible. Bad speech or bad actions, like we see here, discrimination will not only affect others, but will also affect our character personally. And in turn, will affect the whole church. Remember some words from Jesus? He said, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. It doesn't take much to affect the whole body. Warren Wiersbe says it this way, you cannot sin lightly and serve faithfully. The gospel frees us from the bondage of sin to righteous obedience. We speak and serve from a heart of gratitude and a heart of love, not from fear and duty. Eventually, we will be free from this world, from all of its corruption, from this flesh and all of its pain, from this flesh and all the temptations, from the curse of sin, as well as death and hell. One day, we're going to be free from all of that. We are freed by the gospel. Aspect number two. Verse 13, discrimination will be judged by God. Look at verse 13. For judgment is without mercy to one who shows no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. In chapter 1, we validate our faith by our true profession and godly actions. We're constantly speaking the good news and always doing good for the glory of God. I think back in Matthew 25, where Jesus alludes to this as he gives one of the great passages about eschatology. Eschatology is a, a fancy word talking about future things, okay? The king gathers all nations before himself, and he separates the sheep from the goats. The sheep are going to be rewarded for their good works. And here we have that they provided food for the hungry, they provide water for the thirsty, they provide companionship for the stranger. They provide clothes for the needy. They provide comfort for the sick. They provide care for the prisoner. And it said, well, Lord, when did we do these things? Because it says, we, when did we do these things unto Jesus? And Jesus said this, if you do it to the least of these, my brothers, you've done it unto me. So when you help someone, when you do a good action with a heart of love and mercy, that's just like you're doing it unto Jesus Christ. And both James and Jesus shows us 
that the law of love for our neighbor is the point on which judgment balances. But verse 13 shows that judgment is coming. The judgment will be merciless to those who show no mercy. In Matthew 7, verse 2, for with judgment, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. Paul says in Romans 2, all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. And James's half-brother John, Jesus' half-brother John in 1 John 3 says this. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. Paul in 2 Corinthians 5. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be paid for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. A merciful attitude is one of the evidences that a person has life in Christ. The prophet Zechariah in Zechariah 7 says this, Dispense true justice and practice kindness and mercy each to his brother. Do not oppress the widow or the orphan, the stranger or the poor, and do not devise evil in your hearts against one another. James was probably thinking about the words of Jesus when he said, Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. But James reverses it a little bit. He turns it around. He says, Cursed are those who are not merciful, for they will not be shown mercy. Mercy is not just a feeling of concern. It's an actively reaching out to show love to others. Discrimination is the opposite of mercy. If you continue on the path of lawbreaking, you're going to find judgment without mercy when your life is over. And notice James's final words in this text. Mercy triumphs over judgment. A believer that does not action mercy in their life in this world will not receive mercy in the eternal realm. No doubt James remembers the teachings of Jesus about the king who settled all of his accounts with his slaves. One particular slave, after being forgiven, sought out another slave that uh, owed him money. And he just basically, the Bible says, he's just basically choking and saying, give me what you owe, pay me what you owe me. That's the picture there in that passage. He took him and threw him into prison until he could pay his debt. Now just as a side here, how does that work? If he's thrown into prison... Until he pays his debt, how's he going to work and earn money to pay his debt? I don't understand that. But other fellow slaves saw what happened, and they reported to the king what had been done. Listen to the words of Jesus here. Then summoning him, the Lord said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have also had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way I had mercy on you? And his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until they should pay all that was owed to him. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. God is holy. God is just. And God is always angry at sin, including the sin of his children. God has a standard, but we can never reach that standard in and of ourselves. There is a debt that has to be paid for our lawbreaking. The only payment that God will accept is the shedding of blood, the death of a sacrifice. Judgment brings death. For in Romans chapter 3, we have these words, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. It continues in chapter 6, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Then back in chapter 3, being justified is a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Jesus Christ, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, 
he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration I say of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And then in chapter 5, these great words. But God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Discrimination is a transgression of the law. You may be sitting there saying, well, I don't discriminate. Good for you. Let me ask you another question. What other law of God have you broken? Think about it for a second. Why don't you think about that? Remember the rich young ruler? What do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And he said, keep all the commandments from youth. And he said, well, I've done it from youth up. He said, one thing you lack. What did he say? Go sell everything you have and give it to the poor. The Bible says a young man went away sorrowfully because he loved his possessions more than his neighbor. He offended the law in one point, yet was guilty of sin. You offend the point, law in one point. Remember last week I pointed out the law is more than just the Ten Commandments. The Mosaic law was 600 plus commands. You offend it in one point. You're guilty of sin. Radical faith lived in a radical world is a faith that is not compatible with discrimination, whether it's racial, social, political, or denominational. By way of application, I'd like to go back to verse 1. But I want to pose it as a question. Look at verse 1 and listen to my question. My brothers and sisters, do you with your acts of favoritism really believe in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ? Are you a believer that practices any form of favoritism or discrimination? Maybe there's been a time when you had the un, you, you practiced the unfair preferential treatment to one person or a group at the expense of another. That's favoritism. Maybe it happens in the home, workplace, whatever. Or maybe there was a time when you had an unjust or prejudicial treatment toward different categories of people, especially based on age, race, or sex. That's discrimination. Maybe you had some kind of preconceived opinion that's not based upon reason or actual experience. You have a dislike or hostility derived from unfounded opinions. That's prejudice. Maybe there's a belief that all members of each race possess characteristics and abilities specific to that race, especially distinguishing it as inferior or superior to other race or races. That is racism. Maybe you show an excessive loyalty or support for one's own gender. That's chauvinism. Or maybe you're just being intolerant toward those who hold different opinions from yourself. That is bigotry. Anyone whose faith is compatible with any of the above-mentioned people is probably a possessor not a true believer. A true believer, a true person of true faith, a person that possesses true faith, does not show any form of oppression, persecution, or discrimination. A person of true faith is one that their speech is honorable before man and God. A person of true faith is one that their actions show love and mercy to others. A person of true faith is one that their life is lived to honor Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. A person of true faith is one in which their character is one that represents the gospel in a godly manner. The invitation today is simply this. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord 
believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, one believes and is justified. With the mouth, one confesses and is saved. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And for those who have called upon the name of the Lord, there is therefore now no condemnation in Christ Jesus. Let's bow our heads. I submit to you today that if the Spirit of God is speaking to your heart, and you realize in your heart that you're not a true believer, you've not yet taken that step of faith, confess that you're a sinner. If you've not yet taken that step of faith, believe in the grace and mercy of a sovereign God who chooses those who he wants to come to faith. And thirdly, as you pray, repent of your sins and call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Father, I pray for those that have heard your word, God, I pray that your spirit is moving in hearts that he is convicting of a believer's heart that is showing any form of discrimination or favoritism. They will confess their sin so that you will forgive their sin. Father, for those who may be here today that have never taken that step of faith, I pray that your spirit will move in their heart, come into their heart, Lord Jesus, as they ask and pray. For it's in the name of Jesus Christ, who is both God and Lord, we pray.